just before we get started, I do want to thank Research Assistant Kelly. I can't fucking believe how clutch she is oh, at, yeah. at, at research. It's She should get paid to do this for somebody. I wish we could pay her. The uh, So you got over your fear. She of... got over the fear. You got over the no, fear. No, she messaged me. She had to okay. make first contact. Okay. Yeah, she yeah. said, hi, Adam, with a smiley face. And I said, <laughs> well, thank you for not punching me, Kelly. Anybody who wants to contact Adam, remember that you make the first move. And you're good to go. I'm like a cat. Mm-hmm. You got to stick your hand out so mm-hmm. I can sniff it a little bit first. <laughs> Maybe a compliment. Yeah, that might work. <laughs> well, go. either way, Kelly, I will use her forever as long as she will let us use her. Hell yeah. Thank you, Thank Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. You're the best. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another yeah. episode of the Bubble Butt Podcast, the only podcast on the internet that uploads weekly. Who knows what it'll be about this week? It's me. Mm. My name is Adam. Sitting across from me, as ever, is Cody. Hello, Hello. Adam. How's your week? Ooh, tiring. I was a tired boy this week. I I went to bed on time all week long. It was uh it was quite delightful actually. But I feel I feel productive, which is important. I think I'm I'm feeling back at work, feeling yeah, productive. I feel like I'm productive. I feel like I'm helping people in a weird way, which is an extremely weird dynamic coming from walls or where I feel like we are ripping people off. So That's all we were doing. Yeah. And we were getting taken advantage of at the same time. Yeah. It was just a vampire from every direction. <laughs> I honestly, I, I even said this, you know, to Bianca, I'm like, man, it's when you have an entire company with a different philosophy, it feels so different. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it feels great. I, I actually really, really like it. Even though, man, I don't know if I'm getting old. I had to buy sh- shoe insoles today. Ah, uh, that's like, just from being out of work for a while. Okay. Yeah. Your yeah. muscles just ain't used to it no more. <laughs> the fucking standing up and like on a, on a hard floor. Mm-hmm. I even got nice shoes for that. Fuck my feet hurt yesterday. Yeah, that you'll get back in mm. there. You remember being in the trailer all day. That mm. wasn't that long ago. See, here's what I was wondering. Would did the trailer have just because it was shitty, have just enough cushion for your feet where they didn't hurt? No. Versus because it the was concrete. off balance at the same time. Mm, it true. was also not level in the slightest in have, there. Have I talked about our family defect that my mom has uneven hips? Oh. So like one leg's a little longer, so it eventually erodes from Hell walking. Yeah. I don't know if I'm gonna have the same problem or not god but uh yeah i I don't know where that comes from but my thing my grandpa had it and she had it try Uh, and even out your hips people mm. do your kegels stretch around (laughs) no it's impossible because one leg is mathematically (laughs) longer than the other apparently you're supposed to go to a specialist and get shoes with that are like make you level sure but yeah i don't know if that's the cause but no it's was, it was like my heels kind of felt like it hurt yeah you were probably getting little spurs like no mm. problem no mm. problem that's just your fascia will get over it and you will uh you'll recover i promise i did you. get i did get some insoles for a little backup but uh it's all yeah Good yeah. idea. I I always forget every time you start a new job and you're standing all day again, you kind of forget about them growing pains yep. initially, but like, shit, shit. Mm. I can't just sit down when I get tired no more. I was so happy to come home and just fucking just sit down. Oh, that's nice. My god. That's nice. And then you realize how beautiful like personal time is. Mhm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not me. I'm taking every day for fucking I love it. Oh, you you you'll be back in my shoes in no time. I know assuming it. the world doesn't implode, I but know uh it. I know it. <laughs> but for now, I'm going to remember how lucky mm. I am every day I wake up whenever I want to. How much time do you have left? 
Uh, well, I have another 13 once this 13 wears off. 13 weeks. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you might actually be in the perfect time because that will be, uh, hopefully the first wave of vaccines and stuff. Hopefully for the love of God, they start giving people a little stimulus here. Yeah. Kind of help, you know, yeah. brace everybody up because that that's bad. It's I might really com- bad right I might now. be able to complete the year if I uh, if I you if play I cards keep it up. right. Yeah, next year. No, this like, this year till March or April, I might be able to be unemployed. Okay, yeah. all right. Well, let's see. I guess we got to brace and see what our government does, and that's supposed to end this month. What is the the additional stimulus? Oh, there on? hasn't been additional money. Oh, in a long really? Time. Yeah. No, uh, this is just like extended pandemic regular uninsurance. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Jesus, worse than I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no stimulus. It's still the the regular unemployment Oof, money. God, but damn. it's extended and it's a lot better than fucking mm, nothing. That's mm, for sure. Mm. And I don't want to be out there working in the COVID fields right no, now. No, 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 no. You got to find yourself a nice business that actually believes it exists. Yes, that's step one. Yeah. yeah. And I can tell you, I am working for a company that does not fuck around in the least bit about it. Have you ever seen the town? Uh, I have. Yes, yes. This yes. is the not fucking around crew. <laughs> and we got to tell them we're not fucking around either. I feel like you'd fit in if you ever moved there. To Boston? Yeah, south, you'd be a Southie. I'm not uh, redheaded enough. You know, well, you could dye it. I could. They'd have to call me Mick Palenti. Here's the thing. Why can you dye your hair red, but you can never make it look like a real ginger's hair? That's true. That's true. Why is that an impossible tone of hair color to get? They're chosen. They're kissed, <laughs> yes. kissed by fire. Yes. All right, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. John Edward Robinson was born in Cicero, Illinois in 1943, a suburb of Chicago with rich mafia history. After building his empire in Chicago, Al Capone moved out to Cicero to avoid the reach of the Chicago police. Unfortunately for J.R., his family situation is pretty common in the stories we tell. He was the third of five children to a union electrician and binge drinker father named Henry and an overbearing disciplinarian mother named Alberta. Mm. Do you think around this time you would be a weird dad if you're if he wasn't a drunk? Yes. Okay. Because the place you were supposed to be as a father when your wife was in labor was at a, at the bar because birthing <laughs> was woman's work. I want to tell you. So our old neighbor was named John Edward. Mm. Um, hopefully he doesn't listen to this, but he was like the town goth. Mm-hmm. He was about six years older than I was, but he always had like. The pentagram tattoo. Oh. He loved Marilyn Manson at oh, the time. All yeah. that trench coat, mm. all that, and dressed up in uh, the face paint. I think too. Cobra forties. So. Was mm. he drinking those? Uh, I don't know. I think he smoked pot once. Mm, goddamn. Oh yeah, that was a big thing. He got in a car wreck and then found all his weed. That's oh. what it was. He probably had like an eighth of mm. the shittiest weed. Mm. You could this is the nineties though, yeah. so we gotta remember. <laughs> It was very dangerous then. Absolutely. Are you excited? You uh, the the house passed for like a national. Uh, it doesn't make it federally legal. Mm, All it does is decrim. But it's a step. It is a step. Absolutely. America's a place of baby steps. You gotta remember that. Alberta had sprawling dreams for her middle son and briefly made him a star, but only briefly. Hmm. When he was thirteen, John was accepted into the prestigious <laughs> Quigley Prep Seminary in the heart of downtown Chicago, which was a five-year Catholic academy for aspiring little priests. That same fall, he made the rank of Eagle Scout, and Alberta positioned him to be the commanding scout 
of a 120 troop visit to the Queen in London and put wow. on a variety show for her. Here's the thing. Was so in the what would this be like fifties ish? Yes. Um, was fifty seven? Was the Catholic Church basically like the NBA is now scouting out really young kids to come join them? Pretty much, what? yeah. If you had Jesus. the inclination to be a little priest, you would be you would go to the seminary for sure. <laughs> Jesus. According to a Chicago Tribune article at the time. John Robinson was chosen because of his scholastic ability, his scouting experience, and his poise. Mm. He also had an engaging smile. That will get get you really far in the world. It's a nice smile. I'll tell you that much. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you what. This man, he could go on the Mount Rushmore of con men (laughs) because he is a con man. Fuck yes. Robinson shows up in that year's edition of the Quigley Prep yearbook, but not in any subsequent year. He sort of disappears and goes off the radar until he pops up in the registrar at Cicero Junior College in 1961, where he began studying to be an x-ray technician. Unfortunately for John, he didn't graduate. He slips back into obscurity for three more years before popping up again in Kansas City. At age 21, he would marry Nancy Jo Lynch. In 1965, the couple would welcome their first child into the world, a John Jr. Mm. In 1967, their second child, Kimberly, would be born. And now shit was getting expensive, and Robinson's life of crime would truly begin. Uh, Kimberly and John Jr. cost too much here. Way too much for old old John. And old John didn't like to get his hands dirty work-wise. Would really prefer not to work a (laughs) nine-to-five. Well, clearly he does not like the lead vest required for an x-ray technician. That's what swore him off. That's what uh, swerved him. Do you know how much schooling you need for that? Is it a bunch? I don't know. I I was curious. I'm genuinely curious. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if it's four years. (laughs) Okay. You know. Not a bad job, though. John was employed by Kansas City physician Dr. Wallace Graham, who was famous for being Harry Truman's personal doctor. Really? Wow. John had forged himself credentials saying he was a fully qualified (laughs) x-ray tech and began embezzling post-haste. In June of 1967, Dr. Graham reported $33,000 was missing because of manipulated checks and deposits. In August, Robinson was found guilty but avoided jail time, instead getting three years probation. So he couldn't just be happy lying about being an x-ray tech. Always got to go that extra Mm -hmm. mile. While on probation, Robinson got a job at a TV rental company. He stole merchandise and was let go, but the infraction wasn't reported to the probation office. In 1969, he got a cushy job at Mobile Oil as a systems analyst, and they weren't aware he was on probation. Why on earth wouldn't his probation officers inform Mobile of his legal standing? Well, according to one of his officers... John does not appear to be an individual who is inclined towards crime in his nature. He strives to achieve middle-class values. That is wrong on every (laughs) level. He strives to achieve rich man values, and he loves crime. Maybe his probation officer just didn't want to deal with him? Well, another officer stated on August 13th of 1970 in an inner office memo at the Missouri Board of Parole and Probation. Robinson is responding extremely well to supervised probation. I am not going to tell Mobile about his legal standing. Instead, I'm going to encourage him to advance as far as possible within the company. You know what? I mean, we believe in second chances here, but 
You got to be upfront about it. Yes, that's the thing. You have to let the other party be willing to give mm. you a second chance as well. Also, are you sure this isn't actually about Jordan? Oh my goodness. <laughs> a lot of, he worked for a, some sort of oil changing company, right? Or I've a tire company or something. I, I heard that. <laughs> Exactly two weeks after that memo was filed, Mobile discovered Robinson mm. had stolen 6,200 postage stamps from the company. He was fired and reported to the police this time and charged with theft. Since he kept striking out down here and getting caught, he decided it was time to pack up the small family and move to his hometown of Chicago. What What are you going to do with 6,200 stamps? I don't know. Okay. I know I he doesn't know. have that many letters to mail. No. Can, maybe there was a reselling thing back in the day. I'm not sure. We we mail a lot of shit out for our Patreon, and over all the sh- people we've mailed stuff to, I don't even think we've cracked a thousand yet. Stamps? S- yeah, stamps yeah. used. Yeah. Pretty, probably getting up there, but, uh, but yeah, that's insane. Could you resell them? That's what I was thinking. Maybe you could sell them for half the cost or something. But that seems like a lot of work. I wonder how much a stamp was back then. Fuck. Like a forever stamp? Yeah, yeah, probably 15 cents. (laughs) He started work with Illinois-based R.B. Jones. As soon as he settled down into the flow of his new job, it was time to start stealing. Mm. He embezzled a provable 5,500 from the company over six months before he was caught (laughs) and terminated. Luckily for him... Robinson's daddy gave him the money to pay it back so the Illinois authorities didn't press charges. They did, however, ask him to leave the county. So it's time to move on back to the Kansas City surrounding area. Was his dad saving him from the prior charges or only here? This one, yeah. They had no idea about his other charges. He just keeps going and not saying. I mean, this man has confidence. He is a confidence man. Could kleptophilia be a sexual thing for him? I don't know if this is kleptomania. Kleptomania, that's what Yeah. I, I don't know what kleptophilia is. <laughs> he likes to fuck people that steal? Um, per- perhaps. <laughs> or fuck Appar- stolen goods, maybe? Well, maybe his wife is a kleptophiliac, <laughs> I guess. But She gets off to stealing? <laughs> John, tell me about what you stole from work today. <laughs> I don't know if this counts as kleptomania or like some kind of embezzling thing. What se- it seems like he likes doing it, he right? He loves being a criminal, and he mm. loves that it pays for his little family, that's mm. for sure. Is that what he claims his number one re- drive is for doing this? Yeah, because he can't okay. afford it and probably doesn't want to work very Do hard. we fully believe him? No, I don't believe <laughs> him. Robinson wasn't supposed to leave Kansas City as he was on probation, so when he popped his head back up, he was <laughs> apprehended immediately for violating and thrown in jail in order to... Provide a strong motivation for complete reversal in behavior. Uh, didn't work. Mm, Spoiler alert. Mm, I, I, I'm seeing a pattern. This was merely a scare tactic, and Robinson was released after a few weeks with a five-year extension on his probation. I don't think probation's helping him. No, it's not. No, <laughs> he, it's he not. Just, he doesn't care. He doesn't give a shit. Even after all of this so far, the probation office still thought they were making good progress in rehabilitating John. In April 1973, they released a report on him saying, Prognosis on case is good. No, it's not. Little did they know, Robinson was already stealing again. <laughs> this time, not from a company, but his elderly next-door neighbor, Evelie McKnight. Come on. A retired school teacher who gave John $30,000 for an exciting new investment opportunity, and obviously she never saw any of those returns, but didn't report it to the police until much, much later. <sighs> 
Nothing more despicable than stealing from an elderly person. Give me a shitload of money. Mm. Trust me. I'll make it more money for uh, you. Who did this? Rackstraw did this to mm-hmm. his neighbor. Mm-hmm. Bastards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bobby fucking Rackstraw. <laughs> the Missouri Parole and Probation Board decided John Edward Robinson was rehabilitated and released him two years early in 1974. Immediately... Robinson started his first of several companies. This one called Professional Service Association, Mm. Inc., or PSA for short. (laughs) This company claimed to provide financial and budget consultation to physicians in the Kansas City area. He was actually able to sell his services to two groups of doctors at the University of Kansas Medical School, but they both dropped him after two months because of missing money and other irregularities in the handling of their finances. Well, at least he's understanding how a legal American uh, scam artist is starting to work here. Yeah, start a company (laughs) and then steal. I think this is what Ivanka Trump just is getting caught for right now. Oh, is she in some hot water? Uh, I haven't caught up. They're tracking that her father was paying her government money for her to give him financial advice or something like that. Oh, my. She was an advisor. Advisor, that's what it was, yeah. She was giving him like a million dollar classes or something like that. I don't think you can do that. No, that's super not (laughs) right. This loss of clients didn't falter Robinson in the slightest. He continued sending letters to potential investors in PSA, claiming the company was healthy and growing, even going so far as to claim the owner of the Kansas Mm. City Royals was interested in purchasing the company outright, and he obviously was not. You know what I'm realizing? If you put an acronym on your company, it sounds more legit. Especially one like PSA. That's really good because <laughs> that's, that's also a public service announcement. Sounds like a lawyer firm, to be honest with you. It's very good. Mm. Finally, after way too long, the Fed started sniffing around as they are prone to do when you're making outrageous claims about your financial business. A U.S. grand jury indicted John Robinson on securities fraud and mail fraud. In June of 1976... A judge fined him 2500 and sentenced him to, oh my God. you guessed it, three years probation. <laughs> this would be the third almost identical sentence he would receive in six years. John was skating through the legal system, stealing everything he could get his hands on. Well, from what I know during this time period, literally all you have to do is tell them that John Robinson's a communist and the FBI will become storming on oh. your fucking door. They were real scared of it during this time. Oh, yes. The Mm. global spread of Mm. communism. In 1977, John and Nancy welcomed twins into the family. A boy and a girl. Christopher and Christine. Fucking assholes. You don't do that. That's so rude. Don't do that. Mm -mm. They packed up shop and moved across the state line into Kansas. They bought a nine-bedroom house in the affluent neighborhood of Pleasant Valley Farms in southern Johnson County. At the time... It was one of the richest counties in the U.S. and made Kansas residents feel superior to their neighbors in Missouri. Mm, okay. Well, I wonder why he likes Kansas so much. He loves this whole area. <laughs> Kansas I mean, I'm City, sure, Missouri, Kansas, Kansas. I'm sure Kansas City's fine, but like, or Kansas is fine, but it just seems, even in the 70s, it can't be that popping. Maybe it's uh, easy to steal women and stuff. Mm, well, does the Kansas City mob still a thing? I'm not sure. Probably they not. Ta- they talk about it on the show Ozark, but I don't know if it's really still a th- I assume during this time period, maybe it still was a thing. I don't want to say anything 
uh, out of turn, but it, I feel like white organized crime is pretty much dead. It's like real hard to do these days. <laughs> I think the mafiosis are pretty much well. Okay, if most mafiosos are Italian in Kansas City, what the hell are they? Polish gangsters? <sighs> what the know. hell's going on down? German know. gangsters? What's going on? Along with his new modern symmetrical four-story, two-fireplace mansion, Robinson started another new company, HydroGrow Inc., <laughs> and produced a 64-page booklet called Fun with Home Hobby Hydroponics. Mm-hmm. The foreword on the book read, We hope that as you read this book, you will form an acquaintance with John Robinson as a sensitive and stimulating human being. It also portrayed him as... One of the nation's pioneers in indoor home hydroponics and a sought-after lecturer, consultant, and author. Well, this is a fucking fluff piece here. Probably written by him, but, you know, forged to say it was written by somebody else. So, obviously, hydroponics is a great way to grow marijuana and tomatoes. Yeah. At this time, was it... I wonder if this is, like, the newest technology in fucking growing plants. I think so. I think so. Mm. It certainly is the best way if you're going to have, like, an indoor, any sort of, like, garden center or anything, you're going to have to have a hydroponics setup. This is where you grow them upside down, right? I don't think so. What's I it, think what hydroponics just is, like, it's in a controlled water environment where the pH mm. can be balanced and all that gotcha. stuff. Gotcha. What's this shit? I know if you grow a tomato plant upside down, they're supposed to be really good. I've also heard that, mm. yeah, yeah. Everyone in the Pleasant Valley Farms neighborhood loved the Robinsons. John organized picnics and became the president of the neighborhood association. He was always making renovations on his property and helping others with their project. His kids were well-behaved and popular. Now 14-year-old John Jr. was becoming a real handyman around the place, and the twins took care of the neighborhood pets when their owners went on vacation. John next did something downright loony. He forged a bunch of letters from influential people claiming that he ran a workshop for disabled people and sent them to City Hall, resulting in the mayor of Kansas City <laughs> presenting him with the Man of the Year Award. Fake it till you make it, baby. The newspaper, the Kansas City Star, looked into a few of these letters of recommendation, and the people they were supposedly from were very surprised to have nominated someone they had never heard of for an award they didn't know existed. Mm, Maybe this is where BTK got his idea from. Hey, maybe. (laughs) He's like, I guess the Kansas City Star will just believe anything, so he starts (laughs) mailing all his fucking letters to him. (laughs) As his neighbors got to know John better, this pleasant veneer started to fade away. They found him argumentative and short-tempered. There's no finer example of this than his neighbor Margaret Adams in Avon Gardner, who asked him to demonstrate his hydroponic system to her. She was interested in having a winter plant set up in her basement, and he gladly agreed. However, when she said his prices might be a bit high, he kicked her out and called her small potatoes. Oh, you do not call a Kansas City lady small potatoes. Mm -hmm. Especially not an Avon Gardner. (laughs) Another neighbor's dog was barking too loud, and fisticuffs almost came over over it. He resigned his presidency with the Neighborhood Association, calling it invalid when it failed to enforce some of the neighborhood rules. One of his neighbors said, You was cocky and arrogant. You had to walk on eggshells around him. Typical, you know. Mm. Little man syndrome. What are you supposed to do? Like, put a muzzle on your dog so it can't bark too loud, or what? I mean, dog's gonna bark sometimes. Dog's gonna bark. 
I mean, you can give it a treat or something. I don't know how you get dogs to quit barking, to be honest. I don't know. Like, if somebody walks by too slow, they'll bark. If mm. they walk by too fast, they'll bark. Mm. They just seem to bark sometimes. Robinson probably still thought he was that same Eagle Scout commander <laughs> who performed in front of Queen Liz because he was overheard on several occasions ordering his wife and children around like a drill instructor. The children seemed to love it, and they thrived on the discipline. They wanted to please their father and become perfect, considerate little tax-paying citizens. Nancy, on the other hand, started divorce proceedings that she only halted after the couple started going to counseling. How, how embarrassing is it that you are running your family's household and your highest status is Eagle Scout commander? Right, right. And he, he fucking is probably still in love with it. I bet he comes about it. <laughs> he said that, uh, or no, he didn't. The Kansas City Star said that he... On that same trip, he met Judy Gardner. The okay, is she the Judy Garland? Okay, yeah, Wizard, Wizard of, Oz. of Oz, Wizard of Oz, yeah. And he said, "Don't worry, I'll protect you. Us Americans got to stick together." So that was, <laughs> I guess, nice of him. I don't know. I guess he didn't know it. He wouldn't have known at the time how uh, broken of a woman she was. True, alcoholic. Mm. In 1980, while still diligently running Hydro Grow. Robinson took a job as the director of personnel at the Kansas City headquarters of Borden <laughs> Foods, Inc. Of course, the global produce conglomerate didn't check Robinson's background. Within a few months, he was running the same old fraud schemes that had got him busted numerous times before. He was manipulating checks and deposits to move funds to and through accounts managed by his financial company, PSA. This time, he managed to steal $40,000 part of which he spent on a lavish fuck-pad apartment where he had affairs with two different women employed by Borden. One of the women said, John kind of swept me off my feet, and he always had money to treat me like a queen and take me to nice restaurants and hotels. The most important things in life. Mm, I mean, yeah, I guess there's some hot babes working at Borden's Foods Incorporated, huh? And this guy is like a swollen little guy he's, like he's, he's, he's not, a chubby guy but he's not chubby in like fat he's chubby like an alcoholic gets well fat. you gotta remember 70s early 80s jordan's body was in style so that is true that this is guy might have been like the hottest thing on the market right i didn't now. think about that <laughs> the, that hairy dad bod is is right in there now at this point the state of missouri knows everything that robinson has done and is capable of doing and they still treated him with kid gloves he spent two months in jail over this and was given another five years probation. <laughs> this bastard is a true mm. con man. He was able to bluff the whole thing away in his community as a misunderstood business deal. He kept running HydroGrow and started himself another company called Equiplus, which claimed to offer management consultant services. Equiplus's first client was Back Care Systems, which was a company that ran seminars for corporations in managing, preventing, and treating back pain caused by sitting in cubicles all day. Interesting. Okay. We've had a couple of those come through walls or where they teach you how to stretch and mm. all that kind of stuff. I always, I like, it, I get it's great information, but it, I always feel like it's not genuine. It's just, you have to listen to this so you cannot sue us or claim workman's comp later because you're supposed to follow the steps that these people told you to follow. And so they can check it off on their insurance form that they taught us all this stuff. Here's the other thing. Equi Plus literally sounds like, like if you hear that on TV, you're like, holy shit, that sounds like a fucking scam. Yep. 
That's 2,000 plus brain right there. That sounds like they're trying to (laughs) steal my disability checks or something. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Backcare Systems hired Equiplus to develop a marketing plan. But when they started receiving crazy expensive or downright bogus invoices from Equiplus, they reported it to the Johnson County District Attorney, who opened a criminal investigation. I'm just kind of like, what is he telling him? It must, I think it's like from vendors where he's like, you know, getting a table or something. Okay. And he's like, $800 for the table rental or something so that he can skim his share off the top. But I'm assuming he had to give out at least some advice of some sort. So is he, do you think he's kind of smart enough business savvy to like con him into following his direction? It's just he charged him a surplus for like random shit? Absolutely. Gotcha. Is ex- absolutely what Gotcha. Happened. Okay. Robinson's lawyer advised him to get sworn affidavits from vendors proving the invoices were not inflated, and surprisingly, Robinson did just that. Not surprisingly, though, they were forged. (laughs) Still not worried about it, Robinson opens up another company, this one called Equi2, which would act as the umbrella company (laughs) absorbing Equi Plus and opening up a whole other string of business and philanthropic ventures. But Equi2 would do more than just absorb Robinson's other companies. It would also lure young women to their deaths. Ooh, we had an escalation here, huh? Summer of 1984. 19-year-old Paula Godfrey gets an offer that's ostensibly too good to be true. Since she was an honor student and figure skating prodigy, Equi2 offered her a position that would include an all-expense-paid training course in Texas. On the day of, Robinson came around and picked her up at her home in Overland Park, Kansas, to bring her to the airport. After not hearing from Paula for several days, which was incredibly out of character, the Godfreys contacted the police. The cops checked with John, who denied any knowledge of her whereabouts. As far as he knew, he claimed, he dropped her off at the airport for training. Shortly afterwards, however, the Godfreys received a letter signed from Paula that said she was okay and just didn't want to talk to her family for a while. Having nothing more to go on, the police gave up on the investigation. (sighs) Well, we know now that's quite suspicious. She is considered now to be Robinson's first victim. Mm, But her body was not recovered for some time. Really? Mm. I don't want to give away too much. Okay, I was just going to ask that, but we'll save that. This became a trend. Robinson began offering to help several young women, offering them jobs with Equi2 or even more sinister. In December 1984, he presented his new company called Kansas City Outreach to the leading public hospital in KC, Truman Medical Center, and a public-funded young mother's group called Birthright. Like, this is the most predatorial thing I've ever heard, and he's not even hiding it. Kansas City Outreach. Mm. I love how he makes it so, like, basic. Mm. Like, wow, this could be real. Robinson was able to convince both the hospital and Birthright to send him a few candidates for his housing and training program, promising that this experiment was fully funded by IBM, Xerox, his Presbyterian church, and other major companies. (laughs) Quite a combo of... uh... Of things they're trustworthy sources. Fuck yeah. Do you think they're ever like, Xerox, it's never going to go anywhere. We got to have Xerox the rest of our life. How could you live without a Xerox Well, they were going to need new models every year forever. <laughs> nope. Now you just take pictures of shit with your phone and send it in. Well, we do know IBM is still around yeah. in the shadows, but they're there. Hey, they're making all the servers that we mm, work on mm. and processors that we use. In early January 1985... 
Truman Medical Center found the perfect candidate for Robinson's new program. 19-year-old Lisa Stassi had just given birth to baby daughter Tiffany. Her recently separated husband Carl was a possessive abuser, and her situation was turbulent to say the least. Robinson told Truman Medical that Lisa and Tiffany would be housed in the business district in South Kansas City at an apartment on Troost Avenue. When Robinson talked to Lisa directly, however, he told her his name was John Osborne, and he was going to help her get a GED and job training in both Denver and Chicago. So instead of putting her up at the True Stab apartment, he took them to the Roadway Inn in Overland Park. On January 8th, Robinson, as Osborne, told Lisa that her and the baby were about to go to Chicago for the first round of training in a day or two, so stay ready. <sighs> in preparation, John made Lisa sign four blank pieces of paper and also give him names and addresses of her closest relatives. He said he would contact all of her family members with updates as she would be too busy training to be writing letters. The dream of stable independence, free to live her own life, and support her baby were too good to be true, and that's what her family and friends were trying to tell her for an entire day and a half when she left the hotel to go and get some belongings from her home. When John picked her up from her sister-in-law's house, he was fucking pissed that she left the hotel and told her they would be heading to Chicago that very night. As her sister-in-law watched her and Tiffany get into Robinson's car, she had a terrible feeling and would later say this in court. I was afraid of him. I knew deep down that would be the last time I ever saw Lisa. That's ominous as fuck. Jesus. The next morning, Lisa's sister-in-law called the roadway in where she knew Lisa was staying, but the clerk told her that Lisa and the baby had checked out and that her bill had been covered by John Robinson, not John Osborne, and that a corporate credit card was used registered to Equi 2. Robinson's brother Don and his wife Helen had been trying to conceive for years. When they realized it wasn't going to happen for them, they began trying to adopt. Still, roadblock after roadblock. John told them he had connections down here in Kansas City through Truman Medical that could help fast-track him through the adoption process. So the couple flew down from Chicago, where John met them at an airport in a limo, took them to his lavish Equi 2 office in Overland Park, and had them sign official-looking adoption papers and pay John 5500 in cash. No fucking way do I think this is going where it's going. This is the craziest shit I've ever heard. What the fuck? They then took the limo back to his house, where a party was awaiting them, along with a beautiful, healthy baby girl. John had brought the baby home the previous night unannounced, Nancy would later report in court. There's even a happy family picture with everyone in it. John told his brother that the baby became available when her mother committed suicide. The new happy parents named the baby Heather and took her off for Chicago the following morning. Oh my god, holy fuck. What? Here's the thing. If he's this big of a con man and he tricked all these businesses and shit and he has all this money, he he couldn't trick the adoption agency to, you know, expedite them to have a baby? Or he could do it his way where he gets to get off as well by killing a lady. Yeah, like I manipulating forget, her whole I, family. I forget about that aspect. I for I forgot we took a sharp turn from like <laughs> fucking con man, uh, you know, ripping everybody off into like fucking murder. Who's <laughs> now getting its jollies off on? I forgot about that part. Lisa's sister-in-law went to the Equi Two offices to confront Robinson and was physically ejected from the building by him. So she went to the Overland Park Police Department and reported her and Tiffany missing. At the same time, the Truman Medical Center and Birthright were independently growing suspicious. 
Robinson told them that Kansas City Outreach was funded by the Presbyterian Church he helped found in Pleasant Valley Farms. He also told them another supporter was Olath Bank, where he said he sat on the board of directors. Berthright called Olath Bank, who said not only does Robinson not sit on the board of directors, they had never heard the name before. The church, on the other hand, acknowledged he was a member, but they were unaware of funding any programs for unwed mothers. Wow, okay. As Berthright representatives kept making calls, eventually, on December 18th, 1984, they led directly to probation officer Stephen Haynes. <laughs> is Stephen going to do the right thing here? Stephen is a godsend. He Stephen's is. an angel. Okay, we got our first good probation officer. Let's go. Hames had dreams of becoming law enforcement, so the Missouri born and bred boy got himself a degree in sociology and criminal justice. But poor eyesight kept him out of the exciting field of policing, so he settled for being a P.O. Hames was the one that took the call from Birthright and personally had never heard of Robinson, who was supervised by an officer in the next county over. Hames sent a letter to Robinson ordering him to appear at the probation office on January 17, 1985. Robinson didn't show up, so Hames sent another letter, this time registered by a judge ordering to appear on the 24th. Mm, so you only get, like, two warnings and then you're in deep shit, oh, huh? Then I assume the marshals are out. <laughs> then I assume the marshals are out for you. Hames also called the Kansas City field office of the FBI and asked if they were investigating Robinson and if they were aware of any baby-selling rings in the Kansas City area. The FBI were not investigating Robinson, although he was on their radar, and they had no knowledge of any human trafficking circles in KC. Which is how to tell them that the babies were communists. They would have been, they would have found them. Well, we're in the 80s now. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're a bit past where oh, that's... Oh, did the Reagan smash get the wall down finally now? Uh, that'll be a little bit further mm -hmm. on. I think it crashed after Reagan was out of office, <laughs> but it was his Star Wars program that, that caught, and Rocky IV. Oh, yes. Uh, what's the guy's name? Ivan Drago. Drago, yes. On January 24th, Robinson arrived right on time to Hames' office. He was 5'9 and 200 pounds. According to Hames, a lot of it was bloating, and he looked like the Pillsbury <laughs> Doughboy. He exuded con man energy. He was friendly and had an answer for every question with a smile or a laugh. When asked if he was in contact with Birthright, he answered yes, of course he was. That was part of an effort by him and his business associates to give back to the community. Ames then asked if he told Birthright that he had obtained funding from his Presbyterian church. What? Robinson acting confused. He said he thought they asked him what church he went to. Not anything about funding. Yeah, yeah. Easy mix up. Do it all the time. Mm -hmm. We do it all the time. That's yeah, definitely what happens. <laughs> Robinson also mentioned all on his own that he had contacts at the Truman Medical Center and they had placed two young women in his apartment on True Staff. Hames was, of course, welcome to stop by the place for a welfare check whenever he liked. Naturally, Hames' next call was to the Truman Medical Center, and social workers there said their clients at Troost seemed to be doing well and flourishing. However, they had a girl named Lisa Stassi, who Truman Medical had referred to Robinson, who was missing, and Overland Park police were looking for Ooh. When Hames called Overland Park, however... They told him the case was closed as there was no evidence of wrongdoing. Uh-oh. The, de the detective with Overland Park also filled Hames in on a second young woman who had gone missing named Paula Grodfrey, but they had received a letter from her saying she was okay, so they stopped looking into it. <sighs> Hames is... Hames is understandably pissed at this point that right. they are, they, like, he sees the entire thing. He sees exactly what's going on, but these police departments are just like, ah, they wrote, they wrote a letter. 
Well, I can see. Uh, are these cops part of the hot dog squad that was God. looking for BTK or they might what? Be. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? They seem about as you know uh, good at their job as they did. A probation officer has to be the one that ties this entire thing together for some reason. Yeah. Well, technically, I guess if I don't know how bad his eyesight is, but uh, he had the drive to be a proper police officer. Mm-hmm. It's just maybe that's why he did. So maybe that's the only reason Robinson was ever caught at all i wonder if he was like he had like a glass eye or did he have like the bottle cap glasses or probably jordan probably jordan Jordan bottle caps do you think think he finally now that he's a working man he got proper glasses yet you think maybe or lasik that would be all right there you go unless his are too bad from lisa stassi's family hames learned about the four blank sheets of paper that robinson had her sign Two letters had arrived shortly after Lisa disappeared that looked and sounded nothing like her. Even more suspicious, they were typed, and Lisa did not know how to type. Mm. Haim straight up asked Robinson where Lisa was. Robinson responded with a soft chuckle. <laughs> oh, Lisa? She ran off to Colorado with a guy named Bill. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's <laughs> the most nondescript answer I've ever heard in my life. Every warning bell possible is screaming in Haim's head. Since Robinson was already a pathological con man, it was more than conceivable that he had metamorphosized into a killer of hopeful and, more importantly, vulnerable young women. Hames called his FBI contact back and said, You need to take a look at this. We've got two women and a baby missing. We've got Robinson driving all over the Midwest, crossing state lines on probation. The feds assigned two agents to begin an inquiry. Special Agent Thomas Lavin a lifelong company man, mm. and a youngin' on the force for less than a year, Special Agent Jeffrey Dancer. <laughs> I'm just picturing him <laughs> doing a ballerina thing every time he enters a room now. Kelly sent me a gift that, of uh, the backseat. He says, I want to dance. <laughs> this is a raid, Jeff. We're, we can't be dancing and alerting them to our presence, goddammit. Sit down. You can't plie on in here. Put your boots on. Take off them ballerina slippers, Jeff. We got. This is serious. The f- oh, I just said that. Immediately, the trio stumbled on an open secret investigation into Robinson and another paroled convict named Irv Blattner for <laughs> forging the signature on a government check. Also, Johnson County, Kansas was building a case against Robinson's Equi 2 for defrauding back care systems. He'll probably get more jail time for de- defrauding than he will murder, honestly. Yep, yep. While the web was being unraveled, Robinson got himself a little obsession with BDSM, mm. specifically the dominant submissive kind. Robinson loved it so much, he decided to turn it into a money-making venture. How, you may ask? He began organizing a ring of prostitutes for customers interested in s and While he was doing pimp business, he went by the <laughs> pimp name JR. You gotta have a, you gotta have initials if you're gonna be a pimp, man. Absolutely. Wait, so... He just likes it from a business, or is he oh, personally? He loves it. Yeah, he loves it. He fucking loves it. Now, the dominant submissive ki- submissive kind, just so I'm following here, that would mean he likes to be abused by somebody else. No, correct? no, no, no. He's he the power. Like, he's, he's the power. The power. He's the dominant. I was gonna say, for a man who has all the power, I would it would make sense if he likes somebody else to dominate him. That's usually how it goes in the privacy of his own bedroom. Here. That's usually how it goes. Mm. I think people with the most power are the ones that like to be tied up and have but candle for, on them. And but stuff. for a psycho uh, like this guy, he likes power in real life and he likes power in the bedroom too. I think he likes blending them 
and then mm. ending it with murder. Mm. That's where it, I think fantasy and reality are just fucked in his head or something. Even though all this info kept popping up, none of it led to Lisa Stassi, her baby Tiffany, or Paula Godfrey. So Hames called Robinson in for another visit. Why is everyone making such a big deal whenever I'm only trying to help people? By the way, Lisa Stanzi has already been found. She's okay. Tiffany, the baby is okay. Everybody is okay. Okay, sure, sure. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, the baby is, we know that. Uh, her name's Heather now. <laughs> and she lives in Chicago with your brother. Did the, did they know the name of the baby prior to it being renamed to Heather? Yeah, they knew it was Tiffany beforehand, yeah. Oh, Tiffany the baby. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought the... Never mind. Robinson claimed a local woman had contacted him saying she just babysat Tiffany while Lisa was getting some overtime in. Unfortunately for Robinson, that story collapsed when the FBI contacted the woman in question. After hours of interrogation, she admitted that the babysitting story was a fake. Robinson had forced her to tell the story if she was contacted by police. The reason she lied? She owed JR money and he had naked pictures of her he was threatening to release. Bastard. I w for some reason, I was envisioning like a fat, I don't know, Italian man calling, yeah, this is Carla. I've been babysitting the baby all week. <laughs> like, Carla, what's, what's wrong with your voice? Nothing. I just got a deep voice for a woman. Two packs of cigarettes a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he couldn't actually find a woman. He just hired his friend to do Jimmy. it. Jimmy. Yeah, Irv yeah. Blattner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The FBI's next course of action was to send in an undercover female agent to apply as a prostitute for JR. They met in a restaurant in Overland Park, and he laid it all on the fucking line, telling her she could earn two to 3000 a weekend flying to Dallas and Denver to serve as a submissive sex slave for prominent judges, attorneys, and politicians. He also warned her she would be subject to physical pain like having her nipples manipulated by pliers. He sounded so thirsty that after hearing the recording of the conversation, they decided not to continue the undercover work out of fear for the agent's safety. <sighs> the old judge and the nipple uh, play with pliers sounds, oh. sounds pretty common. Oh, sounds you know like Judge a... Judy was twisting some nipples with some pliers. I watched a recent Judge Judy uh, yesterday. It was on the TV. They put like so much vaseline on the camera lens for her. they make the lighting so like everything's glowing around her that's how much they're trying to make her okay. not look like an old woman oh, she hasn't retired from the show she hasn't stepped down from the stand negative no jesus she must be starting to look like the fucking crypt keeper that's why everything looks mm. like a dream sequence when it, she's on camera is that a secret of hollywood you put vaseline over used to it? be old castle okay. old cool. hollywood or they would put like a <clears throat> a candle directly above the camera and that would so that would make the lighting super soft on old people. Very cool. All right. Irv Blattner, upon being called in by the FBI, decided right away to help the authorities make a case against JR in <laughs> order to get off on that check forgery. The FBI told Truman Medical Center to get the two women out of Robinson's Troost Avenue apartment, but to do it quietly. Don't rock the boat, make the removal seem plausible. One of the women in the apartment was attractive 21-year-old Boise native Teresa Williams, who had been working waitress and labor jobs around Kansas City, waiting on her big break. She sounds like, uh, I don't know why I heard that name in a waitress and labor jobs in Kansas City. I just instantly thought of that Bon Jovi song halfway there. Tommy used to work mm, uh, on yeah. mm -hmm. Teresa's been on strike. <laughs> 
Robinson said he had a position in mind for her and drove her to an Overland Park hotel room where he photographed her naked and offered her the job as his mistress, where she would have to fuck and suck not only him, but whoever he told her to. He said he'd give her an apartment, a salary, plus prostitution bonuses, and supply her with as much meth and pot as she could smoke. She accepted. Wow, holy shit. Here's an example of the type of date the pimp JR would set up for Teresa. On April 30th, 1985, JR gave her 1200 in cash and made her get into a brand new designer dress, told her to wait across the street from her apartment. A limo picked her up, the driver blindfolded her. She was taken to the home of someone she was instructed to call the judge and taken to his basement sex dungeon, which was, as Teresa describes it, outfitted for brutality and other unnatural sex acts. Sounds like a fucking horror dungeon. Ugh. The judge had her slowly disrobe and then began stretching her on a oh. medieval rack. She understandably started freaking the fuck out and demanded to be taken back to the park. She was blindfolded and returned to Troost Avenue, where a very angry pimp was waiting for her and forced her to give back the 1200 Oh, Jesus. This is why you don't hang out with Chris Angel. <laughs> <laughs> He's the judge. He is the judge. <laughs> He'll Jesus. stretch you on the rack. I, see, I thought you were leaning on that um, Robinson was just pretending to be the judge. Mm. That's what I thought you were going to. No, this is a real... Probably a real judge. Yeah, probably. Wow. Yes. Okay. Or like a very angry lawyer that wants to be a judge oh, super God. bad. <laughs> he, he didn't make it to the fucking district attorney. He's yeah. taking it out on her. Gee, I, I didn't know putting someone on the rack was like a sexual thing. I, it's not. It's certainly not. Just a psycho yes. here. Okay. When JR found out Teresa was having sex with her boyfriend at the apartment, things got heated. After the boyfriend left, Robinson barged into her bedroom and yanked her by the hair out of a dead sleep and started spanking her, saying, You've been a real bad girl, and you need to learn a lesson. Teresa started screaming her lungs out, and J.R. unholstered a pistol out of his shoulder and said, If you don't shut up, I'll blow your brains out. He then pulled the trigger, which crashed down on oh an empty God. chamber. Now whimpering and crying, J.R. tickled her body with the barrel of the gun before shoving it into her vagina. I bet you never had a blowout before. What a fucking psycho. Oh my god. JR ripped the gun out of her, holstering it, and left as suddenly as he had come. He had to go referee at his son's soccer game after all. <sighs> this is why so many parents are mad at the fucking refs when their kids are playing soccer. Their minds are elsewhere. Yeah, they're He's psychos. still thinking about putting it in the girl's <laughs> vagina. If you're a soccer mom, you just pick up your kid and you see an angry ref. He might have just stuck a gun in some lady's private area. Yep, yep. Yikes. Teresa and JR made up, however, when he promised to take her to the Virgin Islands in mid-June. Well, on June 7th, Special Agents Lavin and Dancer showed up <laughs> unexpectedly at the True Stab apartment to question Teresa. Now I'm just picturing JR and her sitting there, and all of a sudden they hear the, the little twinkle toast. <laughs> and, then, and then Dan's like... Put your hands up, bitch. The little fairy dust tinkle <laughs> as he's coming in. <laughs> she recited an obviously coached story about how she is employed by Equi2 and she is being trained in the field of data processing. As soon as the agents mentioned the possibility that Robinson was likely involved in the disappearance of two other young women, however, she broke down crying and agents were able to get a little more truth out of her. As Lavin and Dancer were questioning Teresa, Robinson unlocked the front door and walked in. 
The agents ID'd themselves and forced Robinson up against the wall to frisk him for weapons. They didn't find any, and Robinson said he was in a hurry and rushed out the door. Okay. The agents made no no attempt to stop him. Was he got another soccer game to coach? Where is he going? Come on. <laughs> After he left, however, Lavin and Dancer insisted on moving Teresa to an FBI safe house, hidden from JR. They had good reason to be afraid. Because like Stacy and Godfrey, Robinson had made Teresa sign four blank pieces of paper. That's his fucking calling card, huh? Mm-hmm. Four blank mm-hmm. pieces of paper. Lavin, Dancer, and Hames filed a formal report with the Missouri Board of Parole and Probation, saying that Robinson had violated the terms of his probation by carrying a gun, supplying drugs to Teresa Williams, and lying to probation office. Hames asked the court to revoke probation and jail Robinson immediately. Good. A judge absolutely agreed but Robinson was able to bail out pending a hearing the same day. This must have been the judge with the rack right here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the FBI kept Teresa secret, gave her money, and bought her a one-way plane ticket out of town with a strong recommendation never to return. The Missouri Court of Appeals overturned the district judge's ruling on the grounds that J.R.'s constitutional rights had been violated. He had not been allowed to adequately confront his accuser Teresa Williams. Is, is that a thing? Absolutely. So what, in, in court you're allowed to look him in the face or you have what? To front, yeah, you have to face your accuser, absolutely. Okay, okay, interesting. Lavin, Dancer, and Hayes were apoplectic. They couldn't believe this murdering, pimping, terrifying monster was free to walk the streets. That very day, Robinson was featured on the cover of Farm Journal, mm. a widely read monthly agriculture magazine. How much pussy would you be getting if you're on the cover of Farm Journal? Every little daisy oh duke you can God. think of. I've, I would assume Farm Journal eventually morphs into FarmersOnly.com, but I could oh. be wrong. I don't know. No, that's true. That's certainly true. And if it's not, I'll make it true. If anybody has a copy of Farm Journal, <laughs> send us the classified ads back for lonely farmers Holy looking shit. for love. If It'd anybody has this issue with Robinson on the cover, Ooh, let me have it. I bet true crime people would love that. Certainly. Mm. He had convinced the editors of Farm Journal that he was a master of agricultural finance. To the outside world, Robinson was still just a well-respected Kansas City businessman with a lavish office and a beautiful four-acre home in Pleasant Valley Farms. Across the border, in Kansas, however, Robinson's trial luck had run out. The Johnson County District Attorney finally had all the evidence they needed to charge him with fraud against back care systems. A jury convicted him in January 1986. That same month, he was convicted of a second felony, this time committing fraud against an Overland Park man in connection with an Arizona real estate deal. Because of Robinson's extensive prior criminal record, a Johnson County judge sentenced him to serve between 6 and 19 years in a federal prison as a habitual criminal and con man that was guaranteed Mm. to offend again. Yeah, he ain't stopping anytime soon. Mm -mm. Robinson figured out immediately that his persuasiveness and far above average intelligence went even further in prison than it did in the public. He was put to work as the coordinator of the prison's maintenance operations office, He would end up writing computer programs while assigned to this detail that would save Kansas prison systems roughly $100,000 a year. Wow. He's like the Andy Dufresne of this place. You'd think, here's the thing about these type of people. They're so smart and they can do so many good things, but for some reason they just can't help themselves but to kill people, rob people, like, you know what I mean? Like it's Just the it's just... easy way. I don't know. It's not even the easy way out. They're just inclined towards being evil. Mm. 
if he did he did all this for the computer system while in prison, I'm certain for the 80s, he could have certainly did a lot because computers were just kind of like coming into their own right then. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like that. You get into that field right then. You're fucking set. Certainly. Mm. And guess what? He loves computers. He loves computers. We'll find out. Shit. Did he discover porn? He discovered <laughs> He discovered something much worse. Let's Ooh, put it that okay. way. Okay. It's hard to consider a series of small strokes as lucking out, but that's exactly what happened to Robinson. Because of the strokes, he was able to make a lasting impression on the prison medical staff. So much so, it prompted them to write a nine-page report dated November 1st, 1990, in which George M. Penn, M.D., wrote that Robinson was a model inmate who has made the best of his incarceration. He's a nonviolent person who poses no threat to society. Oy. He is a devoted father and husband who has uh. taught his family a strong value system. I guess his smile is that powerful, huh? Yeah. And he can bullshit a man up a fucking tree. Jeez, unless he was, like, secretly whipping George Penn in the back office or something. I plugging don't know. His, plugging his butt and mm. stuff. <laughs> Dripping candle wax on his nipples. Here's... It's crazy. This is fucking crazy. He taught his family a strong value system and what? Just doesn't live by it or what? Do we know does he mistreat his family? Uh, just as, you know, his kids love him. But mm. he, his wife doesn't like being treated like a child. That's mm. for sure. It's because it seems like much like BTK, he's kind of like keeping those things separate, mm-hmm. kind of. Mm-hmm. Because of that glowing review, Kansas paroled Robinson after three years, but he was still facing prison time across the border in Missouri for violating his probation by going to prison in Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck or yeah. going to prison in Kansas. That's a hell of a loophole there. I like that. <laughs> his probation officer was still Hames. But the FBI had moved on to other cases, obviously. It's Mm. been three years. Mm -hmm. Ames predicted Robinson would use his medical problems to his advantage when he went to prison in Missouri, so he sent a very strongly worded letter to his counterpart at the Kansas Parole and Probation Board. I believe him to be a con man out of control. He leaves in his wake only unanswered questions and missing persons. I have personally observed Robinson's sociopathic tendencies, habitual criminal behavior, inability to tell the truth, and scheming to cover his own actions at the expense of others. I was not surprised to learn he schmoozed his way through prison, considering he is a genius, white-collar con man capable of being charming and personable to those around him. That sounds very like a very dangerous man. That is the perfect few-sentence write-up mm. that you could ever make for this guy. Mm. He is an out-of-control con man. He can't even stop himself from conning <laughs> people. There has to be a sexual aspect for him. Oh, yeah. Has he comes. To be. He comes from it. He There's rips no somebody question. off and he just jizzes in his pants? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. Just as Hames predicted, the first people in the Kansas prison system that Robinson befriended were the prison doctor, William Bonner, and prison <laughs> librarian, Beverly Bonner, his the wife. Bonners. He, he made friends with the Bonners, huh? <sighs> Beverly found Robinson so endearing, she gave him a job in the prison library. J.R. would only serve another two years before being released in the spring of 93. Wow. His wife, Nancy, had been forced to sell their property in Pleasant Valley Farms and get a job as a housing development manager at a trailer park in South Kansas City. It was a real fall from grace for the family to live in the trailer park, 
but they soldiered on. So I wonder if Nancy kind of thinks like this is just the government sticking it to him versus uh, because you think with all this time of him in jail, she could have tried to get the hell away from him. You know, I hate, I really hate, uh, I, it, these scumbags really put the mm. people they, that love them and mm. that they supposedly love in very precarious predicaments. Very true. Very true. And it's like, even if she did know, which I find it hard to believe wives of serial killers don't know. I really do. Like on some level, they have to know. Mm. You share a bed with this dude. You, sh- you. You have to know that he's capable of something. I don't know. Clearly, this guy's good at hiding it. I don't know. I don't, she maybe... knew that she knows that he's into BDSM. She knows he's having affairs. But does she think that just comes with the businessman lifestyle or what? I don't know. Maybe he's he's kept her a financial prisoner, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, where he's made it so she relies on him financially yeah. or whatever. You know, that happens too with uh, pieces of shit. So. Fuck yes, it does. Mm. Despite his model behavior in prison, Robinson started criminaling up again as soon as he got out of the pen. <laughs> Beverly Bonner left the prison library and her husband to go into business oh with JR. God. He gave her the title of president of Hydro Girl Inc. Soon, her mother began receiving letters, supposedly from her daughter, saying her job at Hydro Girl was taking her to so many amazing places abroad. She never left her return address, but instructed in the letters that all of her mail, and most importantly, alimony checks, should be forwarded to a P.O. box in Kansas City. So, that's slightly suspicious. Unbeknownst to her mother and ex-husband, J.R. was picking up and cashing all those checks. After January 1994, no one heard from Beverly Bonner again. Next up was a widow, Sheila Faith, whose husband died of cancer, raising a wheelchair-bound daughter named Debbie all by herself. She thought she found the perfect man in John Robinson, who likely stalked her out of a newspaper personal ad. Sheila and spina bifida suffering daughter Debbie lived in Pueblo, Colorado on disability payments from Social Security. A friend of Sheila's recalls this about her. She was a very lonely person. She needed companions. John promised her the world, told her he was going to take her on a cruise, that he would take care of Debbie, that she'd never have to work again because money is no problem now. I feel like that's the ultimate con tricker word there. Money will be no problem now. Money is the root of all evil, right? Uh, yeah. It makes people do insane things, doesn't it? It in, it in fact does. Like this, put their trust in this psychopath. The, okay, you have the lady and her baby... I didn't think it could get worse, but now that he's taking advantage of a widow with a handicapped daughter. That's right. Yikes. That's right. What a piece of shit. The Faiths planned to visit Texas in the summer of 94, and were going to stop and hang out with John and KC on the way. Out of nowhere, though, in the early summer, he drove to Colorado and picked them up in the middle of the night. The mother and daughter were never seen again, although their disability checks would continue being cashed for quite some time. Where, you may ask? Kansas City. So he killed two people for disability checks. And because he loves it. He loves oh, yeah, forming these relationships too. and then fucking killing them. True, true. Thanks to the internet, JR's sexual horizons expanded well beyond the personal ads in the paper. The sicko had three different desktops and two laptops going in his trailer at all times, 
so he could troll BDSM forums and chat rooms for hours as Slave Master. Mm, okay. Surprised that username wasn't taken. He, he was early, though. This <laughs> is guess. the 90s, man. I guess. In the early months of 97, Robinson met Isabel Lewicka on one of these chat rooms. Now a freshman at the University of Purdue, Lewicka and her family had emigrated from Poland with permanent residency visas in 1993. Both of her parents worked at Purdue, and the family's first English teacher, Margaret Mannering, described Isabella as a girl who loved art and fashion design and she described the family as very friendly, always waving when she would walk by. At Purdue, she was chasing a fine arts major, but soon got addicted to the budding internet and was on it for all hours of the day and night. In the spring of 97, Luwicka accepted an internship from a man in Kansas. She couldn't give her parents details, but she was going to be able to utilize her artistic talents in this job. He just tells all these girls exactly what they want to hear, and it's a dream come true for them mm -hmm. because he's not offering a free ride. He's offering good-paying employment and free housing, which means total independence for these girls. Gotcha. Yeah, that's... I mean, I guess it's a good thing now. For the most part, everybody's exceedingly skeptical about anything anybody says on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, in the 90s, yeah, it's just kind of like we didn't have that kind of hesitancy well back then i remember internet safety was a mm. huge thing you never give out your real name mm -hmm. you never give your address you never give your phone number you use a fucking fake name all the time well, that was being taught everywhere i mean people like him clearly could you know i'm people probably weren't that efficient with email and messaging and sure. they couldn't really decipher the difference between some scam artist who says, do you have any iTunes stores for sale? <laughs> and somebody who is actually genuine. So, uh, I mean, I used to hang out in chat rooms, too. And it's like, I'm sure I said some stuff that I would never say today. Hell yeah. In fear that somebody would come kill me or, or trying to groom NSA you. would show up or yeah. something. <laughs> Clearly, he's grooming and luring her, like you said, with the... The possibility of a dream job and, yep. and being, I'm assuming, an immigrant, you know, that's a big thing. That's like the American dream on mm. steroids. Mm. Her parents strongly urged her to reconsider, but she couldn't be stopped. When would an opportunity like this ever come up again? She packed up her car with all of her paintings, some personal stuff, and some clothing and headed out to start living her dreams in Kansas City. She left an address for a place on Metcalf Ave in Overland Park. Although her parents wrote to her at that address several times, there was never a response. After two months without hearing from her, the Lewicka family drove to Kansas City to see this address on Metcalf Ave and hopefully see their daughter. However, when they got there, it was a post office box whose manager refused to give up anything without a warrant. They returned to Indiana without contacting the police. They'd... Wow, okay. Jesus. What was actually happening was Isabella Lewicka was moved into an apartment in South Kansas City where Robinson had cut her off from everyone and she was living under a strict 115 agreement filled slave contract. He paid her bills and when he wasn't using her for sex she was living the lavish lifestyle spending a lot of time at a rare and used bookstore buying vampire and other dark creepy books looking like a straight up goth with black studded dog collar included. Okay, now I'm confused. Is she wants to do this? Yeah, she's having a great time. Okay, she loves it. She's she likes so time. she just likes the gothic BDSM 
Mr. Gray slave contract thingy. Like when he's off doing stuff, she's free to just hang out at the apartment mm. and go get mm. books and just hang out. I have a feeling JR's about to turn things bad. In January of 99, JR moved Luwicka into an apartment closer to the Equitu offices in Olaf, Kansas. He told various people that she was an adopted daughter or a niece or a graphic designer that worked for his company, depending on just who he was lying to. Is that what your brother is, an adopted gra- graphic designer? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Six months later, Luwicka suddenly disappeared. Robinson told a business partner she had been caught smoking pot with her boyfriend and she was booted back to Poland. <laughs> they deported you for smoking pot. <laughs> Jesus Christ. When Robinson handed over the keys to her apartment to the landlord at the end of the lease, the landlord had never and would never see an apartment so clean. He definitely got his deposit mm-hmm. back. It yep. was noticeable. It was rememberably clean that's how fucking clean it was according to the landlord i like being i like keeping my room clean but there's a point where it's like too clean becomes suspicious yes yes Mm, exactly when you call zero res up there to clean everything then you know i saw the zero res truck over here down the street and in my head i'm wondering did someone just kill somebody over there yeah is that do they do crime scene cleanup (laughs) no no they don't but but i'm saying like if you murdered somebody you're trying to hide it you call them to come clean your apartment. Hell yeah. I don't, I mean, that's, the, what a terrible industry. That is an industry though. Crime scene cleanup. Oh yeah. Ugh. Oh yeah. You should get into it. No. You know, I'll throw to... up. Yeah. <laughs> you get used to it after eventually. Yeah. After eventually. I'm worried about the well, parts before that. The, I'm assuming it sounds like there's a lot of hoarder uh, cleanups. Yeah. Like people yeah. who die in abandoned houses or whatever. I can or see that. that that's what happened to the dark star on the radio. He used he di- to be on K-Fan, yeah. He died in, he was a hoarder? Yeah, huge hoarder. When they went to his property, it was like, holy he shit. He was just dead in yeah, there. Yeah. Oof. Next up was Suzette Trout, a home care nurse that had a special BDSM fetish on the side. She was in four submissive relationships at the same time. J.R. met Trouton on the internet in the fall of 99, only a few weeks after the disappearance of Luica. Robinson invited her to Kansas, and she accepted. He had a job for her he said, as a personal care nurse for his aging, jet-setting father. In actuality, his father Henry had been dead for 10 years. He flew her out for an interview to Kansas and met her at the airport in a limo. Mm. Troughton told her mother over the phone that the interview went well. She was always in contact with her mother. She was the youngest of five children and definitely a mama's girl. She went on, saying J.R. and his father had a yacht that she would be sailing with them off the Pacific in California possibly all the way to Hawaii. Wow. Suzette and JR agreed on a 60000 a year salary, along with a Kansas City apartment and a brand new car. She flew back to Michigan to get her stuff, loaded it in a U-Haul, grabbed her two Pekingese dogs named Harry and Pekka, <laughs> and lit off for the new high-paying jet set in life in Kansas City. I'm just going to say, first off, Pekka, not a very unique name for a Pekingese for a there. Pekinese, is that how it's called? Pekingese. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it is. <laughs> I think you're right. Pekingese. Um, but, but can you actually sail on a yacht from California to Hawaii? I don't know. Have you I ever seen the documentary, The Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. Do you remember when their yacht gets caught in the middle oh. of the ocean? Yeah. I'm wondering if that's what would happen if I would you tried that. Yeah, I was like, I think you would need a pretty big boat to do that. I don't think you could take just a yacht out there. No, you need a hefty ship to mm. go over the ocean. I think so. 
Uh, isn't he in his yacht and then the plane gets struck by lightning? Or is it something else gets struck by lightning, like right in front of him? Yeah, it, it is. Oh, it's the rescue helicopter or rescue something. Rescue helicopter. I think that's so. What it I'm is. not sure. Yeah. yeah, I remember that being like, geez, I'd be shitting my pants and if I like, saw that. Holy fuck. <laughs> that's great how he's like, you need to go back and get the loots. <laughs> <laughs> After boarding her pets at a doggy hotel, Robinson checked Troughton into the presidential suite in Lenexa, Kansas, and had her sign and address over 40 pieces of paper and envelopes. Jesus. Explaining to her that his office would take care of writing her family, as she would be way too busy on the yacht. On March 1st, J.R. paid the final bill for the suite and checked Troughton's dogs out of the pet hotel. Neither the hotel clerk nor the pet hotel clerk had actually seen Troughton at all. Is this what that Disney movie's based on here? Which one? <laughs> Isn't there a movie called The Pet Hotel? <laughs> There might be. Oh my god! It's actually that would be a backstory for a serial killer here. For fucking poor Lisa Troughton's <laughs> Pekingese, Pekingese, right? Pekingese. Yeah. Okay, I'm a, I I don't know. I've only ever That's fucking a, read that word. Maybe so somebody like, will. I don't. I've always heard people call him Pekingese. It is Pekingese. Or yeah, what did Pekinese. you say? Pekingese. It yeah. is Pekingese. Mm, yeah. Cute little dogs. Yeah, but it looks like Pekingese or Pekingese. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that that'd be sweeter if they were called that. <laughs> Pekingese. Mm-hmm. Later that afternoon, her two dogs would be found in portable kennels with no ID collars, alive, outside the animal control office in Santa Barbara. Around mid-March, Suzette's mother would finally get a hold of J.R., who told her that at the last minute, Suzette changed her mind and ran off out of state with a young guy named James Turner. Her mother didn't believe that story, and a few days later, she started receiving letters and emails that were signed Suzette, but they didn't sound like Mm. her at all. Her mom knew she would never leave or be banging a man named James. Truth. Guaranteed. James Turner. Mm. That's like the mo- he's used like literally the most generic, like she left for Bill. Bill Williams. <laughs> Bill Williamson. Yeah. Suzette's mother didn't waste any more time and contacted the Lenexa Police Department, who also thankfully wasted no time by pulling up Robinson's record, saw that there were several missing women cases in neighboring Overland County, noticed the similarities here, and called every department he could, including the FBI. A task force was urgently organized under a prominent Kansas City District Attorney named Paul Morrison. Obviously, a good resource to plumb would be Probation Officer Steve Hames. One of the detectives would say after a conversation with him, Jesus, Steve, you had this guy pegged from the start. And I bet he's finally feeling that validation of being like, Jesus, finally, someone's fucking listening to me about this creep. Old Steve finally got that release he needed. After Hames briefed the task force on Robinson's criminal history dating all the way back to the 60s, (laughs) they told Suzette Troughton's mother to tape every phone call and to forward all emails from her quote-unquote daughter over to the Lenexa City Police. They also coached her on how to get Robinson to give up incriminating information. In February 2000, Robinson, on one of his five computers, found another woman who fit his twisted profile. Her name was Jean, a professional from the Southwest, divorced and 34 years old. The best part for Robinson, she was looking for a financial BDSM relationship with a professional who could also employ her. She wanted to be his money slave, basically. Gotcha, okay. We call this, what, sugar baby now? No, no. Sugar da- yeah. Not even, no. This no? is like, he controls her bank accounts and oh, makes financial I decisions. I yeah. thought you it was the other way. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Gotcha, okay. 
Slave Master J.R. introduced himself to Jean as James Turner. After they both decided they were going to be able to fulfill each other's kinks, Robinson flew her down to Kansas, put her up in a suite for a long weekend from April 6th to the 11th. They banged real hard and often, and he must have knocked her socks off because she accepted the haunted position of president of Hydrogrow and would move down in mid-May, taking all her possessions with her. You don't want that presidential job. Where is his wife and kids this whole time? Just, just sitting at out. home? Just sitting yep. at home? Mm-hmm. Okay. He, he goes there all the time. He I goes get... home every night almost. He's a regular dad. Really? Yep. Yikes. Before her permanent place was ready, J.R. put her up in the suite at the Overland Park Hotel. Three days later, he called the room and told her she better be nude and in the corner with her hair tied up in a ponytail. When he entered, he grabbed her by the hair and began beating her with a rod across the back and breasts. He then told her to pose for photos, even though she didn't want to, and had told him that from the beginning. Robinson told Jean that he didn't like her attitude too much, and she was probably going to have to go back to where she came from. But he was still undecided and would let her know when he came back later. Jean broke down into hysterics. She moved down here and uprooted her whole life in order to be with and work for someone that only wanted to beat her in order to get off, and now we wanted to send her back. After pulling herself together somewhat, she went down to the hotel desk and asked to see the registration card for the room. She learned that the room was rented to John Robinson and not James Turner. The desk attendant helped her call the police, and within minutes, nine cop cars show up. J.R. wasn't there, so they quickly and quietly collected Jean and her things and took her to safety for questioning. Wait, so he so he used the name of the man he claimed ran, the other woman ran off with. He liked it so much he thought he'd uh, <sighs> he thought he'd hold on to that one. This has to be like a um uh, I'm getting one over on you type of thing. It has to be. Mm. It must be another way to make him come is for mm. the police to be like, oh, he used James Turner nine times. It was finally time to move on J.R. On Friday, June 2nd, his home was surrounded. Detectives placed a dumbstruck John Robinson in the back of a squad, charged him with sexual assault, took him to the Johnson County Jail. Everyone else began searching the house. They recovered all five computers and found a blank piece of paper signed by Lisa Stassi. It was even dated to over 15 years ago, January of 1985. Also found were receipts proving that he had checked her in and out, of his favorite Overland Roadway Inn. A second search warrant was issued, this time for a storage locker where they found a shitload of evidence linking Robinson to Suzette, who had been missing two months, and Lewicka, who hadn't been seen since the previous August. Saturday, June 3rd, another police parade was rolling out to a 16-acre piece of property near the sound of Lasigne. There, right out in the open, near a tool shed, were two freestanding yellow 55-gallon barrels. When one was pried open, they found the body of a young female, head down, in about 14 inches of decomposition liquid soup. Ugh. In the second barrel were red and green pillows, and underneath them, another female body, this one clothed and also soaked in its own liquids. This investigation was still considered top secret. However, the task force gave probation officer Hames the courtesy of telling them they found bodies before it hit the papers. Hames said, It confirmed what I'd always believed. But even still, the move from theory to reality was chilling. <laughs> so w- did he have, this is just literally just the bodies in there? Or was there some liquid in there or like what? The liquid was them. Just them. Yeah, melting Ooh. and decomposing. Fe- you know, usually when you hear this, they like put an acid or like concrete or something. He just. Just the bodies. Three bodies, right? Three? Two. They found two so far. Two, two yeah. so far. Okay. 
Back in Kansas, at the medical examiner's office in Topeka, the coroner removed the first body from the barrel. She had a blindfold tied across her face. The hair was tied in a ponytail. She had several rings on, pierced nipples, and five piercings in and around her genitals. The coroner surmised that she had received one massive blow to the head, most likely with a hammer, right between the forehead and temple on the left side. A circular section of skull was actually driven into her brain. According to the coroner as well, there were three possible causes of death. Bleeding, damage to the brain tissue upon impact, or swelling of the brain following the blow. She did not die immediately. Oof, okay. So the circular saw... No, a no, circular, circular piece of skull. Sorry, yeah. sorry, mm-hmm. sorry. From the blow, gotcha. Mm-hmm. I I was hearing it as he used some sort of... Yeah. <laughs> 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 there were no defensive wounds, and Dr. Podgman estimated that she had been dead anywhere from three months to a year. The other woman also died from a blow to the left side of the head that fractured the skull. There were two blows, in fact, overlapping that formed a figure-eight pattern. The left side of her jaw was also fractured, and there were no defensive wounds. He surprised her more than likely. Mm -hmm. Mm. At business open on Monday, June 5th, 8 a.m., the task force served another warrant, this time at the Store More for Less in Cass County, Missouri. When they cracked open Robinson's rented unit, E2, they immediately found three barrels and knew there were going to be bodies inside. Also, they could smell the unmistakable stench of rotting flesh. How did nobody who runs this storage unit not smell any of that? Or did they just kind of look the other way? Maybe. Or maybe it didn't get through the door somehow, but I they're usually just cheap metal roll-up doors. Here's the thing. You know all the, the like climate-controlled ones are like hot right now? Do you think killers put the bodies in there in like really colder, like frozen ones? Oh, like no, cold store. Yeah, no smell, yeah. no nothing. That would be the way to go. Oof. It was late in the afternoon before police had emptied out everything from the storage locker, except for the metal barrels, which were sitting in piles of kitty litter, maybe to try and hide the stink, which did Mm. not work. (laughs) When one of the barrels was open, crime lab techs found a brown sheet, which they removed, a pair of glasses, which they removed, and a shoe, which they tried to remove until they realized it was attached to a leg. They decided to reseal it and bring it back to the lab. This uh, reminds me a lot of, like, Jeff Dahmer's house when they... Started taking all them barrels out of there. And by the way, kitty litter in 2000s, right? Somewhere in the 2000s? Yeah. It can't even hide the smell of shit. How the hell is no. it going to hide the smell of a dead body? No, I, have, I have no <laughs> idea. I don't care. I've tried every litter. That shit smell will You're, come through oh, there. Oh, that's a spicy. It's mm. a spicy poop. It does all right on pee nowadays, but yeah. like, you still get a little ammonia after they're after they just peed, but... Are you big in the poopery world? Do you like that stuff? I like it when I can get it. I think it's ex- exorbitantly ex- expensive sometimes, mm. yeah. Uh, yeah, it's... Even that, sometimes your your poopy's just too stinky. It mm-hmm. ain't gonna be blocking mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you would use to do to block it. <laughs> Nuclear waste. The, I can tell you one thing. The, op, the The procedure rooms have, like, this spray... When you go in there after it's done, you don't smell anything. Really? So I don't know what sort of medical grade scent blocking shit they're using, but it's fantastic. Well, they should release that to the public. <laughs> they ain't giving that up. No. One of the barrels was leaking fluid, and detectives were worried the entire bottom would give way. Ugh. So the cops went to Walmart to buy three kiddie pools to place under the barrels before they were lifted into the van. Okay, okay. That would be uh, not a good pool no, to swim in. No, not at all. 
Back at the lab, Detective Mark Tracy stood behind two panes of glass as evidence techs and forensic pathologists opened one of the barrels. He had this to say. When they cracked them open, I... I've been around homicide scenes before, and I've smelled bodies in various states of decomp, but they were out in the open. These were stuffed in barrels, and man, it was an extraordinarily strong smell and very uncomfortable. I can only imagine he's behind double glass in another room and he can can still smell it Mm -hmm. oof my god i mean that one time you took a dump up in my room and it was like (laughs) what jordan threw up yeah we were in the other room and it was just like i don't know if there's a maybe you were trying to flush a dead body in there i don't know but uh i i I can only imagine that is just that was a spicy meatball but even this oh them opening that up that had to be so putrid Each barrel contained the severely decomposed body of a female that had been beaten in the head with a large hammer. These ones had obviously been dead for several years. The first was fully clothed, and the second was wearing a shirt that said, California State of Mind. In her mouth were a set of dentures broken in half from blunt force. The third body was that of a teenager wearing green pants and a silver beret. Once again, no defensive wounds on any of these, because they were obviously struck from behind and killed. So all the bodies, the hammer. He mm-hmm. loves the hammer, mm-hmm. huh? IDs on bodies started coming back from the Kansas property and the Kansas storage locker. The two bodies and barrels there were ID'd as Suzette Troughton and Isabella Lewicka. In Missouri, they had Beverly Bonner, the former prison librarian, and Sheila Faith. Sheila's wheelchair-bound daughter, Debbie, was only ID'd based on skeletal x-ray, she was too far decompositioned to be ID'd <sighs> by picture alone. What a piece of shit. The Johnson County, Kansas DA officially charged Robinson with all five of the murders, as did Cass County, Missouri. They were also both charging him with the murder of Lisa Stassi, who had still never been found. Both Kansas and Missouri attorneys would be seeking the death penalty. On October 8th, his Kansas trial began. Outside, a local radio morning show was selling t-shirts with the slogan, Roll Out the Barrels. Okay, Jesus. Robinson's wife Nancy admitted that she knew her husband went as James Turner online and had affairs on her and that he enjoyed the BDSM lifestyle. Coroner Podgman took the stand and described to the court how each woman was killed with a blow to the left side of the head and all were killed instantly with the exception of Luica who had somehow managed to survive for a little while before finally succumbing. The defense likely tried their hardest. They tried arguing that it was all circumstantial. Yes, there was evidence linking him to all five women, but, they argued, there was no smoking gun linking him to their deaths. They also pointed out that no other suspect had been investigated. Robinson was always the sole focus of the investigation. I'm surprised they didn't try... Who the fuck put all these barrels of bodies in them in my my shipping containers or wherever? My storage like, lockers. Yeah, storage. Like, clearly, I didn't do Who the fuck is planting evidence yeah, here? Yeah, this is crazy. I mean, I know I'm very obviously connected to these women <laughs> in all sorts of ways, but someone must have planted <laughs> these there. I have signed notes from all of them. <laughs> it wrapped up on October 28th, 2002, and the jury filed out to deliberate. It took them 11 total hours, and they returned with a verdict of guilty on all charges, which Robinson showed no reaction to. Three days later, the sentencing phase would begin. Kansas law was pretty cut and dry on the subject. There were only two courses of action, life in prison or lethal injection. To be sentenced to die, the jury must come back unanimous, and they did just that. Robinson was taken back to his cell and placed on suicide watch until his formal sentencing. 
The appeals were rejected, and on January 21st, 03, the sentence was made official, as well as a life sentence on top of that for the murder of Lisa Stassi. In March 2003, Robinson agreed to be extradited to Missouri to face charges for three murders, Beverly Bonner, Sheila Faith, and her daughter, Debbie Faith. On April 24, 2003, Robinson pleaded not guilty to the three murders, so his trial was set for March 2004. In October, he cut a deal with prosecutors and changed his plea to guilty in order to avoid the death penalty in Missouri, as they are far more likely to actually do it than Kansas. Really? Kansas hasn't killed anybody in a long time. <sighs> Missouri, though, they're, they're all about you. that life. They'll okay. kill you. All right. However, also as part of the plea, Robinson confessed to two other murders he was never officially charged with, those of Paula Godfrey and Catherine Clampett. He still sits on death row to this day because Kansas doesn't really kill people anymore. How the fuck is he still alive, first off? Hey, what a beast. I've, uh, I've, I've never heard of this guy, but how crazy is it you have this guy killing right around when BTK was killing? Eiler BT- was around the area. He was around that area. Was Eiler in Eiler Missouri, was in B- Kansas? Was he oh, in yeah. a BDSM too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I should have. I thought he was. Yeah, that's right. He like whipping. Uh, but yeah, I've, what was going on in the water down there? Oh, I've heard things. I've heard things about how sometimes there's water people in Missouri, <laughs> like people that drink bad water and their their brains are fucked. Mm, this must have been what happened to OJ when he played the Rams there mm, one time. <laughs> I'm not black. I'm OJ. Uh, yeah, Jesus. I've never, I don't think I've ever heard of this Me guy. Me neither. Fucking wild. What a human piece of trash. Uh, well, just, if, yeah. It just seems to make it a lot worse when it's like he did that to the baby and then he did it to the handicapped girl. It's mm-hmm. just, or handicapable, I should say, perhaps, but mm, uh, I don't know. Whatever. Spina, uh, it, spina bifida laden. It's just, I, and the old woman, too, mm. right? She was older. Clearly, mm. she was older. She had dentures. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, what a piece of human trash here. <sighs> Yikes. Uh, uh, I guess Kansas City, let's not ever visit there. Sounds no. dangerous. If you liked this episode, let us know on our website. That is BumblebuttPodcast.com. If you want to keep up with us otherwise, you can do it on Twitter at BumblebuttPod, Facebook at Bumblebutt, I mean, Instagram <laughs> at BumblebuttPodcast. If you want to be a superhero, go to our website also and buy a shirt. Yes. Uh, and if you want to be a super superhero, go to our website, go to our Patreon and join up at any level. That's Patreon.com slash BumblebuttPodcast. Join at any level. Everybody should be getting their cards. Very How exciting. Soon. How exciting. Yeah, I was, uh, it's been a hellish week for me, but I did manage to get them all out. That a boy. You got mm. them all up in there. and They got shipped at about 5.45 or 6 in the morning. Beautiful. Mm. Did you mm. still have to take them up there? Uh, or do wh- you have stamps.com now? No, I, I have, we had stamps in the house. I, I handwrite every address and everything, and then... Put them in the uh, little mail thingy. I actually did it during the Vikings game last week. Oh. Got them already. Oh. During the Vikings game, perfect time for multitasking. So, yeah, those cards are out. Tell me who our newest patrons are. Yes, we need to thank Amy, Margaret, and Kobe. Uh, Amy, you're a beast. Margaret, you're a beast. Kobe, you're a beast. Thank you. And your guys' I have all that shit sent out as well, so you'll probably be getting that. Probably this upcoming week. I don't know. The mail mail system's so fucked up right now. 
you got Christmas and then you got it just not working because of COVID. So yeah. I don't really know. Yeah. You'll get it when you get it. It's uh, it's out of our hands is all mm. we can say. Also, if you uh, want to be a superstar, follow us on Spotify. It's where the cool guys go. You go to Spotify. Uh, and also leave us an iTunes review to make our e-penis grow better. Hell yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't get any written ones, but we did get, I think, one or two unwritten five stars, so Mm -hmm. thank you for that. Keep them coming. And I have a five-star review here. I don't want to say his last name. It's from (laughs) Joe. I don't have iTunes, so I'm not able to leave a review. We listen to you guys on Spotify. Maybe one day Spotify will get with the Times and add a review option. That would be nice. I would like to get those. Anyway, we discovered Bubble Butts in April 2019 when Creep It Real did the DeFeo family and you all did the Lutz family. We have been loyal listeners ever since. I appreciate the research that goes into your shows as well as the twisted smart humor and banter. It's pretty damn cool you guys post weekly. Gives us a show to look forward to every week. Keep up the awesome work. Joe, P.S., any future collaborations with other podcasts in the future? Those are always in the talks. Mm, We're mm. always looking for cool people to do cool stuff I was literally just thinking after I heard how we got, you know, him as a listener. I'm like, God damn, we should probably try to line one of those up again. That Mm -hmm. was was really fun, actually. Hell yeah, that was good. I remember reading two separate books for that one. Damn. One, you, I, you, I think you still have my my uh, Amityville Horror. I do. Book. Yeah, it was, uh, it's a good book. But uh, yeah, thank you so much. We've been getting a lot of good emails, honestly. Love it. I love fucking it. Fucking fantastic. I fucking love it. And I love all of you people. And I want to tell you something real quick. Mm. Right? I want to tell you something real secret. And I want to thank Cody. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Adam. And I want to thank all of you out there. And here's the secret. Have a nice weekend. <laughs> Unless it's Tuesday. <laughs>